0: Hello and welcome to the Leaders Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on yet another sunny day here in the capital. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Almanzo Duas, Sales and Marketing Director of Peak Envelopes, a family business located in Watford. Almanzo, Hello. Hello. Thank you very much for coming on the program today. Uh, Now, normally we get straight into the subject of leadership, but considering uh, the ongoing uh, COVID outbreak, uh, we better start there. Uh, This has had a huge effect on businesses across the country. How has it affected yours?
1: Certainly have. Um, It was a complete shock out of the blue um, and was not something which we had planned for. We try and planned for different eventualities, but hadn't planned for this at all. Um, so when it started kind of coming into the news media in December, um, didn't think anything more of it. And it wasn't really until kind of mid-February that it really, something well, actually, maybe this is something serious. Um, it has had a dramatic impact on sales. And we've also had to change the whole business um, to pivot to change what we're actually offering um, Mm. and also obviously take advantage of government um, support as well in the form of furloughs and grants, etc.
0: Have you had any difficulty when it comes to supply chain?
1: On the supply chain side, we haven't actually had any difficulty. Um, The biggest lump in the road was Brexit or that was what we were expecting um, because we do import some product Um, but we were kind of ready for that we also export as well Um, we've got an office in ireland um, in southern ireland but the actual covid itself hasn't actually impacted upon the supply chain um, amazingly enough (laughs) and we've been able to continue on getting the required products in
0: Now, of course, with all the talk um, at the moment regarding the withdrawal agreement and uh, Southern Ireland, do you feel uh, that business between your Southern Irish office and your main office here in uh, the UK uh, will uh, be a bit more difficult than it has been? Or do you think uh, this will all come to pass, as it were?
1: Yeah, I think it will all come to pass. Um, We've been trading in Southern Ireland for a few years now, um but have been dealing in the euro since its um rise in whatever it was early two thousands. Um so we've been importing and exporting for that whole period. Um and we were also previously buying in French francs and German butchmarks. Um so we we used to dealing in foreign currency um, and dealing in the paperwork before it was such a free market Um, so we can't see it being a difficulty we have got plans in place to overcome all the challenges associated with it Um, but yeah we're a forward-thinking company and do what we can to plan ahead
0: we should move on to the subject of leadership I always like to start this part of the conversation off by asking the same simple question what does the word leader mean to you
1: leader is someone to me it means that someone that inspires people makes them become bigger than they were before um great people in history take someone like winston churchill mm. um he led the country through a very very challenging time and it's a known fact that he got more out of the whole population than if it had been completely ruthless without a leader um so really, leadership is about bringing people to a higher level than they actually are aware of, that they can actually be.
0: And so how would you describe your day-to-day leadership style?
1: I'm an individual that's very forthright and tend to make my position known quite quickly. Um, I It's something I'm working on, is to try and become a more inclusive leader. Um, and not be quite so forthright. Um, But there are pros and cons of every different leadership style. Um, I reach decisions normally very quickly, and normally they are... I go go by my gut, and my gut tends to be right, but it can sometimes leave people maybe not quite as... um, happy about the, the outcome than if I'd just taken a bit more time to explain it. So... That's a weakness in my leadership that I'm seeking to address.
0: Where would you say your leadership style derived from? Uh, Did you have a particular role model or have you been shaped more by circumstance?
1: Shaped more more by circumstance. Um, When I left school, I didn't go to university or anything like that. Um, I got straight into the family business and was put in the deep end. I didn't have a job description even as such just mucked in, did everything from picking packing orders to answering the phone, quoting accounts, you name it, the whole caboodle. Um, and as a result, I have got a very firm grounding of the whole business, and which has then meant that I've been able to be very forthright in terms of I know the business, I know how everything works. So if someone in the warehouse I do still get involved in warehousing now and again. <laughs> um, I like to keep keep um, sharp, know what is going on. But if someone's got a query in any area of the business, I do actually know from first-hand experience um, about it.
0: Now, does working in a family business uh, present some uh, different dynamics?
1: Sorry, I just didn't catch
0: Are there any uh, different challenges uh, while working within a family business?
1: Yes, there certainly are. Um, Different family members have different – I've got two brothers. um, They've got different strengths, different weaknesses, um, and it's a case of working with and drawing on their strengths and seeking to use your strengths, which maybe fill in or um, mitigate their weaknesses, so working together as a team. Um it's good fun. But <laughs> it certainly does have its challenges. Um I was just thinking of one 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 of my brothers, he's not as dominant as me, um, but he's much more of a relationship, so he tends to reach decisions slower but brings more people along with him. So kind of together, um it really helps in terms of the overall leadership of the business.
0: Now, unfortunately, our time together uh, is beginning to wane, uh, but for, before I let you go, what does the next 12 to 24 months have in store for Peak Envelopes?
1: A lot of change. Um, we are doing a lot more, as, and as a result, it's kind of sped um, up the process of change, but we're doing more and more postal packaging um, as more products are being shipped in the post. One Thing that we're also very proud of is our Enviroflute range of products, which is environmentally friendly solutions to single-use plastics. Basically, so for example, it's a, um, an all-paper padded bag range, um, so it can be it's fully biodegradable and recyclable. We've also got a range of paper document enclosed wallets. Again, instead of having the plastic, it's fully paper. It can still be seen, so the dispatch note can be seen. Um, So we're very much tapping into the e-commerce market, but also bringing a eco-friendly, planet-friendly ethos to it. Um, And that's where our focus is and the drive is.
0: Well, Amanda, I'd like to thank you very much for coming on the program today. It's been a pleasure to have you here on the show, and of course, we have to have you back at some point in the future but for now uh thank you that was Almanzo duas sales and marketing director of peak envelopes and now if you haven't heard it before scott chalner's exclusive interview with sir jeff hurst
2: and now ladies and gentlemen without further ado we extend a very warm welcome to a special guest in sir jeff hurst who joins us on the program today um sir jeff good morning
3: Good morning, how are you?
2: Very good, thank you. It certainly is a uh, wonderful uh, day for it, isn't it?
3: It is. The weather's pretty good at the moment. (laughs) I hope it might last. Absolutely. It's it's lovely.
2: It is certainly after a storm. And um, speaking of storms, actually, I'd like to start with just a hypothetical scenario. If we imagine if we fast forward two years, Sir Jeff, let's imagine it's December 2022 and it's the World Cup final and England are there. We could be playing defending champions France. We could be playing the Germans, anybody. And England are 2-0 up in the 90th minute. So victory is all but guaranteed and Harry Kane, with a brace to his name already, is brought down in the penalty area. So he has the opportunity to make history by emulating yourself and becoming only the second-ever player to score a World Cup final hat-trick. Would you honestly want him to bury it, or would you prefer him to fluff his lines?
3: I'd want him to bury it. Um, I've asked that question, I that question asked a bit. Um, I've had a good run uh, with this record, and goodness me, i had, it's nearly 60 years, I guess, if, if we're looking at 2022. No, I'd want him to bury it. A, a for him, he's a fantastic player, a uh, tremendous goal scorer. And if anybody I'd like to um, repeat what I achieved, it would be someone like Harry, who's a f- fantastic professional with, with Spurs and England. So absolutely. And I want England to do well. I mean, I I'm want England to be successful. I, I'm an England supporter. I'm a football supporter. And I just, I really want the country to do well in, in anything, in, in all sports, and particularly in my sport. So I've wound up wanting to bury it and I'll be absolutely, I will be as delighted as anybody in, in the country. Um, if if he can achieve that, but more importantly that England, England have achieved what we achieved all those years ago. And it's important that the team uh, do it as opposed to Harry doing it individually. Mm-hmm. And that's how I felt about my, uh, my achievements about the team being successful, whether I got two or three in one sense is, is uh, and say material, but it's about the team winning. It's all about the team. Mm.
2: Exactly. Consideration of the wider team is a cornerstone of leadership, which is, of course, what the Leaders' Council is all about, recognising that and promoting that for the future. But if we sort of flash back 54 years to that moment in 1966 when you were bearing down on goal, I understand that a lot of people always ask you the question about whether you actually knew there were people on the pitch at the time. And there's quite a bit of a joke about that. But there's something else that I'm actually interested in. I understand we all know what happened. The ball nestled in the top corner, England won 4-2 and lifted the World Cup. But you've often described that as being a mishit finish sometimes before, haven't you?
3: Yes, I think people, um, I, I, I recall exactly what's amazing. I can recall exactly what I was thinking. Um, at that moment, obviously a crucial moment in, in the game towards the end of the game. I knew the game was nearly finished. I, as the ball came to me initially, I was actually, with my back to goal, I was actually looking at the referee uh, 10 yards from me in the middle of the park and he was waving at the whistle in his mouth but waving play on with both arms, indicating quite clearly, of course, that the game was nearly finished. So when I got to the edge of the box, I'm, I now think that the game's nearly finished. I'm thinking that the game's nearly finished. I'm having to whack this ball with everything I've got left. But I'm thinking if it goes beyond the beyond the sand into the corral, by the time the ball boy gets it back to uh, Hans-Pilkowski, the German keeper, by that time, surely the game's got to be over. But as I always jokingly say, uh, I miss hit it and it it flew in. But I was thinking about wasting time, not so much about, uh, but certainly what I was going to do, which which, I was going to hit it as hard as I possibly could after those two hours.
2: And this goes to show sometimes that hit and hope taking a punt can sometimes be the way forward because I think it shows that in any form of leadership be it in sport or in business you can't go sometimes without taking risk.
3: Absolutely, yes. Absolutely. Yes, sir. I mean, I wasn't in that position with risk in a sense because the game is unfinished but that that philosophy is right. You're just going to uh, there's an element of, of, of risks, uh, of making de- but it's going to be a control on that risk, not, not stupid risks in, in mm-hmm. the walks of life. an element of maybe doing something you're not too sure about, but sometimes in life you've got to have a go. You can't uh, get be successful in terms of long-term leadership if you're just always sitting on the fence and not taking any chances. I don't think that's where the great leaders will get to by having that kind of philosophy. You've got to move forward.
2: And the last time that you actually joined us on the Leaders Council podcast and spoke with my colleague, Jonathan White, uh, to Jeff, was back in February, of course. And that was a point where we knew a little bit about COVID-19, which was looming, but that was before it really took hold in the UK and really turned our world upside down. And before that, this summer was meant to be all about the England national team once again, who were going to the European Championships. But that's in a way now being replaced by... The national Health Service and we've been supporting the Health Service and applauding their efforts and we're hanging out thank you banners displaying drawings of rainbows very much in the same vein that you'd see the George Cross adorning most households during a major tournament year. Do you feel there are parallels between the sense of national unity that we've discovered during this time and the spirit of 1966?
3: Oh absolutely, particularly the, the recognition of the NHS with what they're doing and I think it was a great idea. Uh, during that period where they asked everybody to stand outside their houses and clap and congratulate the NHS for w- what they were going through. And I think it's, it's been criticism in the past, of course, the NHS on how it's run, whether there's enough, enough funding for it and, and so on. But really, when you begin to realise during these turbulent times, how absolutely vital and uh, important it is to have a health service that works efficiently, and to see individually the the amount of people who were interviewed almost every day on the terrible circumstances they were having to work under with with masks and so on, and and also into what was also for me fantastic all these people from different, different countries all over the world that were working in our country uh, with the same union to to be successful and uh, help people to survive uh, COVID. It's uh, very heartwarming. And I think that kind of feeling, I, I probably, as a player in 66, I probably wasn't aware at that time of the unity of the country. I've learned that over the years when I talk to people um, who were about 66, and they will tell you what a great day it was and where they were, remembered exactly what they were doing and the fantastic stories. So that identified then as that who's been around a long time, would still say he is the best coach he has worked with. And just, that's 50 years having been in the business plus. And then moving on to, to having a at national level, a great manager. Uh, and the two coincided in a sense because Ron Greenwood always always said that and felt that he, as a, as a, a coach of a League One club, uh, or Premier League as it is today, it's... It's important you prepare them and teach and coach the players to be to prepared to be playing in the best company, playing for England. And so he prepared us to be playing for England. And then Alf Ramsey knew the players to pick. Um, discipline was his big skill, making sure those players were disciplined um, in the right formation. Uh, so the two combined move from one to the other. Uh, how, how can you possibly be as, as fortunate um, as, as I was? It was just uh, amazing. So I think Ron was. I think there are two different aspects of football in terms of leadership. You've got a, you've got a, a coach as who is, who is a team coach, who's a teacher effectively. Then you've got the other kind of character who's, who's a manager, who manages people. May not be quite so good technically on the coaching aspects, but by that stage, the wrong reason of passing a coach person to Al, who's then managed from a discipline point of view, because you're managing people from the whole country, you're not just managing a club. You're managing people, uh, different characters, and, and all over the uh, country is is slightly more demanding job in that respect. So you've got to hone that lot, of all over, right? different characters, strengths, players, into a unit to play for uh, to represent England. So Alf Ramsey was was very good at that. His discipline was was fantastic. So the com- combination of the two, uh, you can't say I can't be as I'm so blessed to be as fortunate as I was to come across these two fantastic. Uh, Leadership's important, and coaching and teaching is important. And and the great teachers and coaches and managers have have that skill. Sometimes it's an innate skill in in management. They have it. But I think um, you you can learn, if you're central enough, to learn from people who are uh, teaching you or coaching you. It's not the right way to go about teaching you or coaching or managing you. You can learn uh, from that if you're a player, you can learn what you think is a good coach, what you think is a good manager, which you can take into your career after playing, into uh, coaching and management. So you can learn as much from people making mistakes. You can learn also from making your own mistakes. Mm. You can do something in the past that think, well, like that was a really stupid thing today do, and I'll make sure I'm not going to do that again. And it, it is important in all of life. You learn from your mistakes. People will make mistakes. Uh, young people will make mistakes but it's learning it's the silly people who make mistakes and don't learn from it continues making those same mistakes throughout their life and becoming maybe unsuccessful throughout their their careers
2: completely understand exactly where you're coming from. I think it's almost impossible to become an effective leader in our profession without having that learning curve of making mistakes and learning from them exactly. Um, During your conversation um, with Jonathan back in February, um, Sir Jeff, I know that you and him discussed at length some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career and throughout adulthood. But I understand that your love for football and obsession with the sport actually started a lot earlier even if you were toing and fro between football and cricket somewhat at the time. I read somewhere that during your teenage years, you were once fined one pound for disturbing the peace after consistently kicking a football into a neighbour's garden. Is that true? <laughs>
3: Not many people know that, as the saying goes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. When in, in those uh, medieval days, you there weren't football pitches or a place very rarely where you could play. You um, In our road in Greenways, it it's called in Chelmsford, we that three or four lads <coughs> lived quite, quite close to it. It was a cul-de-sac. It's not a big long road um, with a round with a circle at the bottom. So there wasn't a great deal of traffic anyway. A because it was a, a cul-de-sac, and B because there weren't as many cars. No, in as many cars in those days. So uh, we played acro- across the str- across the road, um, and you used to, have to learn to chip the ball above the pavement to hit the uh, the goal at the back. The goal was about a, a two foot wide semicircular where the tree where a tree was planted. That was the goal. And so it was free three of us play football. But amongst those houses where we lived and played, there was a, a family and a, a boy that didn't play football. Um, I think he he was interested in uh, flying, you know, and making goals wood gliders. And a uh, nice guy, but just didn't, didn't play football. And on this particular garden, of uh, course, occasionally the ball finished up there. And crazily enough, they... Um, Took us to court, and uh, we actually got fined. This is absolutely true. We got fined a pound for kicking the ball in the neighbour's garden. Astounding when you think about it, isn't it? Mm. And when there's nowhere else to play apart from the street, and uh, we were actually, but that that happens. That happens. You'll you'll hear stories. We see stories of neighbours falling out over different things. You see those those stories every day. But that was certainly a true story. Absolutely, absolutely true.
2: And during that time, um, who was it during childhood that you really looked up to that you thought was an inspiration to you and made you really think that going into professional sport was going to be the route for you?
3: Well, my father was obviously the the, the biggest inspiration for me because he was an ex-player. He he played uh, lower down for Oldham, Rossdale. We actually moved south from Manchester. I was born in Ashton, under the line. We actually moved south to Chelmsford when I was... Probably, I was the eldest of three when I was probably about seven or eight into this particular street uh, called Greenways. And he, what he did with me, I think, was uh, had a big influence. Going back to that third Golden World Cup in many years in the back garden. And when we moved on to it, we moved up market to a council house uh, somewhere in Chelsea. And he would have me in the back garden teaching me to kick with my left foot. And so I, at that time, and even today, it's uh, you don't see that many players that are uh, completely two-footed. And I was maybe not as two-footed as Bobby Charlton, even Jack Charlton, his brother. Didn't know which was his best foot. He, he was fantastic, but I was pretty, pretty um, um, two-footed. And a lot of the hat tricks I scored were one right, one left, and a header. So um, he, had, he had a huge influence. I wasn't, I wasn't a child, although I had a footballing father. I wasn't a child whose father pushed him into being a footballer. He, he um, And what happened with my, my story is a friend of my father, I know the guy's name, called Jock Redfern, unbeknownst to me, he wrote to two clubs uh, for a trial. He wrote to Arsenal, and he wrote to West Ham United when I was just after school-leading age. Uh, West Ham uh, replied. They asked me to come for a trial um, I went for a trial with them and uh, they saw something in me and took me on the what was called the ground staff then, uh, almost at school the age. And uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking I've got to go into football, it's just that uh, that's how it, how it happened. Uh, although I enjoyed football and I was pretty reasonably good, there was no big focus on me uh, as a great schoolboy player. Nobody was scouting me or, uh, you know, writing to my parents saying, come and have a trial at this club or that club. Uh, but a friend of my father um, wrote the letter, so that's that's how it happened. But the problem I had during those early years, I enjoyed cricket as well, and I was messing about, as I, I kindly of put it, between the two sports, which was hugely detrimental to me in my early, early development, either as a cricketer or either as a footballer. And it wasn't until Ron Greenwood um, miraculously tried me. I was a midfield player then, or centre half at school. Um, he. Uh, Tell I'm going to try you up front. He put me up front in the game and then my, my whole football career and life changed dramatically.
2: And I suppose as well, what might have also done it for football as opposed to cricket was that fateful match uh, for Essex over in Egberth against Lancashire, wasn't it?
3: Yes, a lot of people know that. Uh, one game, uh, one game, that they sort of went messing about, but t- between the two, I had uh, one first-class game for Essex, uh, as you said, Egberth in, um, in Liverpool. And I think I got nought and, and nought not out, I think. So, I mean, we won the game from there. I told a couple of catches, but uh, Essex actually won the game. The um, v Lancashire if you're up, up in their territory. But that was that was a real problem for me. I think I could have done with some advice maybe earlier to say, make your mind up. But when you look back, when even today, cricket goes through till, what, September? Whereas football starts in July, so there's a huge overlap. And I'm still playing cricket until September, missing pre-season early games for those two or three years, extremely detrimental to me doing well at one or the other Uh, until Ron Green would just put me up front and that was it. And from a standing start, I think my first season around, I think September, October, I I played my first game up front against Liverpool. And I think I played about 23, 24 games, no, 27, 28 games and scored 14 goals, like one in two from a standing start for Mm. a big field player. So, um, quite changed dramatically. Um, that was 62 sixty, sixty-two, sixty-three season. The three years of all the World Cup.
2: And when we think about leadership in football
3: Well, first of all, he, he was a great, uh, two things for Gordon. He was a, a, a great keeper. Um, I would still say the greatest English keeper we've ever had, uh, and one of the best keepers in the world. Um, absolutely fantastic. Funny enough, I didn't realize, it's funny how you look at, I saw when Gordon passed away naturally, you know, sadly, um, a few months ago. And they was obviously it's showing a lot of videos of the banks in. The programs about Banksy and the great saves he made and the save against Pelé and so on. But I didn't realize how um, athletic he was, uh, how quick he was, athletic. Um, springing forward to smother balls, sort of, and not just tipping balls, he, agility-wise, he was absolutely fantastic. But as a character, he was a joker. He was a, a very kind, very mild-mannered, lovely lovely man, the nicest guy you can possibly wish to meet. But he was a joke. He always had a, a joke for you. Every time you met, sometimes he'd have a new joke, and uh, people um, talk about him and who are close to him. Who remembered what a what a, um, a joke he was? And they're the two things that really stick out for for Banksy.
2: And we were very lucky,
3: very lucky, of course, to have that kind of and you need that kind of quality um, as a world class player. When you win a World Cup, you need four or five players, which we were very fortunate to have in our team. Um, uh, Banksy is one of the world-class players along with Bobby Moore and, and Bobby Charlton. Uh, Jimmy Greaves didn't play with a world-class player in, put in the squad and Ray Wilson, our left-back, I would always argue was a world-class player. So you need that kind of quality initially if you're going to be successful in winning a World Cup Some world-class players. And Banksy was up there, not with the best, the best for me. to be successful at that level, to compete in their level. My discipline was one of them. And, and um, obviously, Tony Wadding saw that. And if he wanted to put, he trusted me that I was disciplined enough to hopefully push some of my discipline into Alan Hudson, which we did. And um, in those early six months and year, a couple of years, he was come up a bit heavier from Chelsea. He lost a bit of weight. And uh, although he was a little bit in himself, hence they needed him to, to stay with me, what he was was a fantastic player. He is uh, was he is one of the, the, the most fantastic players. I think I've come across the, across, but not hit the best because I think he was a certain, uh, slightly bit of ill discipline within his, his general life. And you need at the top, and I'm talking at the top being, being an England player. But I'd compare him purely on ability, compared with ability up in the France Beckenbauer mould, mm. without any shadow of a doubt. He, he was that good. So it was a bit of fun and enjoyable times uh, getting uh, serving Alan Hudson the, the cups of tea about eight o'clock at night when we had our tea at our home for those uh, those few months, and I think it was a, a big help to uh, getting Alan back on track and performing brilliantly for the club.
2: And following on from your days with the uh, the Potters, you went on, of course, to play football in Ireland and the United States before the end of your career. Did you feel that the dressing room and indeed leadership culture at those clubs differed from perhaps what you've been used to back in England?
3: Um, well, I think Ireland was just still sort well of, uh, with Cork Celtic, so it's hard to judge and make any comparisons. And of course, in in America, it was the early days of um, of football in America, uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at Seattle. So it was difficult to make a uh, a comparison. I think I was fortunate. At West Ham, was a great time for the club, and I was fortunate to play with both cities for three years, and it was a fantastic time for that particular club. They won, of course, the 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 League Cup before I went there. Mm. Sadly, they knocked us out in the semi final, so it was a a marvelous time for for that particular club. And very close, we actually, I think we played Ajax the following year in in Europe. I think we only lost on on a goal over over the two games against Ajax. So it was a great time for the club. So I'm very fortunate to have played. Uh, for, for those two clubs. Only a short spell at West Brom, of course, but I think, uh, as, as I always jokingly say, I think I was past my uh, sell-by date then. Um, West Brom was a fantastic club, but I was, uh, wasn't was at my best, and I thought it was time to retire, which I did. And Johnny Giles was in charge then. I think uh, West, West Brom actually got up that year, but I made very little contributions to that success the club had. So, um, yes, it, the American experience was just fantastic. I never thought of long term being over there. That was a, a, a brilliant few months with my wife and um, uh, two daughters, and I think she was uh, pregnant with her third daughter over there. So that was, that was a good time. It was completely different. Ireland was just a, just a, I always joke about Ireland. I was there for about, I think, a month, I think it was, and I enjoyed the experience. And I have earned a few quid, and I think it pays for, for the kitchen in one of my houses back in England. <laughs> New kitchen.
2: <laughs> so it certainly went really well. I suppose in the waning days of um, your career, um, was it humbling that you realised that people were beginning to actually look up to you and be inspired by you as a legend, as in perhaps the same way that you were looking to the likes of Bobby Moore earlier on in your career.
3: Yes, yeah, so I think it's. I think the that kind of. Uh, whether the word, correct word is, I don't know. Being looked at and, and revered, sort of comes maybe, maybe longer, maybe in longer, not so sort of immediately after you finished playing, but in the long term. When um, uh, and I always joke with people, introduce me either to other people or introduce me on stage uh, as a legend, and, and I always jokingly say you, you only start being called a legend when you're over seventy. And I think the, the, the whatever the word is, I'm adulation or recognition or whatever, it sort of happens, and you think more about it, or it happens and occurs more in later years. Not not certainly. Um, I felt during the time after I finished playing or, or managing or playing things during, during my football career. And I think I, I went into business for 20 years. I don't think anybody looked, necessarily looks at me when I was in business as necessarily a legend or somebody they could look up to. So I, I felt that kind of attitude probably has happened in, in my later years, probably.
2: For those younger generations, just lastly, Sir Jeff, before we do wrap things up, um, for people who are aspiring to become leaders in business, politics, sports, or indeed any walk of life, if you could offer any advice to them based upon your experience, what advice would you give them?
3: Simple advice in, in a sentence is really, I learned a lot from Alf Ramsey. He was a, he was a boss. I think a boss sometimes have natural characteristics. You can learn about management on management courses, but there's certain characteristics when the successful bosses is, is, is within them to start with. But one of the things I learned from Alf Ramsey, because I take it into my my business life and even my you know, talk to my family life if they're involved in business, is when you're managing people, you're managing the group. Anybody that doesn't want to be part of that group, you find is backing against what you want to achieve as a boss. You move them out. And I think that's a simple, one of the most simple uh, lessons I've learned during the Alf Ramsey period. Even some of the great players I felt should have been in the squad possibly at, at the time without mentioning names. Um, and you hear stories about this player not you know, completely complying with everything and they're, they're left out or they're not even in the squad. And I felt that was, and even some with great ability I, I think probably didn't make it. And I think a lot of it stems down to they didn't want to be. They wanted to be, you know, a lone champion, successful person, didn't want to be part of of the group. So that that for me is the, the key message, the single key message I would pass on to anybody who wants to manage a group of people in any walk of life. Mm,
2: ties in very nicely with a quote from one Nelson Mandela, in fact, that surround yourself with people who are better than you are in some ways. And I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed.
3: Yes, it is. Very good. Good advice. Yes.
2: So, Jeff, thank you ever so much for joining us on the, uh, the programme this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us to discuss your life, career and leadership. And it would be a pleasure to welcome you back on the programme in future to discuss further.
0: Pleasure. Thank you. Enjoy, enjoy being part of the programme. Thank you.
2: Likewise. Thank you ever so much for your time again.
0: This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye.